Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today, I have someone who I have admired for a very long period of time. Um, I don't want to call him an OG because that means that he's old. You know, you start calling people a goat OG. Um, that means that they have uh, crossed on over. But none other than Bomani Jones. How you feeling, man? Hey, man, I've been getting unk for a minute now. You know <laughs> what I'm saying? Like, I've, I've, I've made peace with these things, man. But I'm good. How about you? I'm doing good, man. Look, we, we start each of our shows the same way by having our guests kind of walk us through the arc of their careers. Uh, and you've done it all as a journalist, TV, radio, the whole nine yards. But one of the things I learned about you is that your <clears throat> academic training in politics and economics and how how did you go from almost a Ph.D. in economics to the work you do now? And how did that formal training in economics help you frame and understand the work you do? Well, I think more accurately, I went from doing media to the academic path because I thought that the academic path was going to bolster the media thing, which, just so you know, is a terrible rationale uh, for trying to do a Ph.D. Like, you got to love it, you know, like you got to really, really love it's school, that. school. That's yeah. school, school. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't um, like that. That really wasn't it. Now, for me, in terms of like the molding is what the economics did was give me a thought process. Right. You throw any problem in front of me. I got a process for addressing it. That's the biggest thing that it did. Like, I think that people have a misunderstanding about economics where they think about it strictly in terms of the economy. But it's basically become the broad social science that has like kind of gentrified every economic neighborhood and kind of made it its own. Just kind of looking at incentive structures and using that to figure out the way that people ultimately make decisions. You know, I, one of the things that's been interesting about preparing for this interview with you is you started your journalism career at the intersection of culture and sports. And I think it's a touchstone of your journalism, why your brand of sports journalism, why you've been so successful at it, to be quite frank. And it's so unique and arguably some of the most insightful. Talk about how much sports is culture and how it helps to shape how you understand and talk about sport. Well, I mean, if sports wasn't culture, you wouldn't see it being pushed by just about every powerful entity and just about every society that you can think of. Right. Like governments and the likes look at sports as being something that can teach values that they believe are important to instill into his larger population. And then from there, success brings a measure of pride that people in control are always going for now. In America, it becomes a bit different because the power structure often does not look like the athletes. And so you have another collision that comes in, which is the culture of the athletes, which is always at war in some level with the culture of those who write the checks. So to me, what makes sports so rich in culture is that it's the idea that we're going to talk about what it is that makes the athletes. And then it gives us a vantage into what those athletes deal with, whether they're athletes or not. Like the money variable throws it off and you get this idea that, well, they're rich, so thereby they have achieved their way out of a lot of these other cultural elements. But then you realize the people that they're dealing with are really, really, really rich. And the power dynamics remain the same. You know, like it's, it's going to be the same, you know, really probably forever on that front. So to me, there's so much that comes up in this because there's so many people coming from so many places because sports is one of the things that everybody is into. Not every single person, but you could argue that every demographic is. I mean, you sound like you're giving us your economic PhD, should have been PhD, <laughs> answer to the 
to the World Cup in Qatar. I mean, talk about the dynamics of, uh, and I believe I pronounced that right. I'm from Denmark, South Carolina, and somebody <laughs> told me it was Qatar, not Qatar, like I've been calling it my whole life. <laughs> but talk about the dynamics of, for example, you have Saudi Arabia, and we, we can get into their human rights violations, et cetera, but they beat Argentina. You find yourself cheering for the upset, you know, that is sports this morning. They beat Messi, and then you have, uh, you have this this great event of diversity and showmanship for the world to see, which is in Qatar, which doesn't have that that role and that that anchor of human rights. What are we seeing in the World Cup as we talk about this intersection of sports and culture? What's your fifty thousand foot view? Well, the thing about the World Cup is it's run by the most corrupt organization in sports, right? And so what they want us to see is very careful and very manicured. Um, they don't want us to think about what is, in effect, slave labor that was used to build all these stadiums that will certainly become overrun by weeds and rust and everything else because a, sta- a country that small has no use for nine stadiums of that size, right? What we are seeing is a nation sell itself to rich people. And I don't think that people really like nail in on that point on it when they start talking about this idea of sports washing. They ain't going to change the way the world thinks about them as a country, really. What they're going to show is, but we also have nice stuff, right? This is going to be the way for them that they can fill up these hotels and maybe some of these dignitaries, right? And these business leaders from all of these places, right? This This is an opportunity for that country to put it's higher end on display for everybody else. Um, in terms of soccer itself, I mean, you can make the argument that it's the most democratic of all the games, right? Like it is the one that more people around the world play. It is the one that probably requires the fewest resources on the front end. Now, of course, you know, the European countries and the South Americans obviously have all their academies and all of those things to develop the players, but just at its root, it doesn't really get more democratic to me than soccer. And so what you have is this world celebration where all these different teams are playing it on different levels. Like, so Saudi Arabia wins this match against Argentina. They really ain't got to do nothing else. Like the, like the Saudi Arabians are not here. Expect- yeah. They're not <laughs> expecting the world cup now just because this happened, you know, and then in yeah. Argentina, they probably over there, you know, losing their minds about this. Oh yeah. People, you, you already know in Argentina, they are going crazy. So let's, Let's go from the human rights violations, et cetera, to of the World Cup, and let's jump right into Kyrie Irving. You know, I think it's Kyrie is interesting because, and I'm I'm going to speak for you as well. I think, but every black brother knows someone oh, like yeah. Kyrie who says and thinks like he does. Like we all we all had that one dude. I mean, I had a dude at Morehouse with me. Um, he was a five percenter. He was a black Hebrew Israelite. He, I mean, he went through, he was groove by groove. He went through all of these different iterations of who he was in college. Um, but it's also the first time I think white people have even come in contact with black Hebrew Israelites and the such. Can you unpack all the elements at play in this controversy from his future in the NBA to what seems like an introduction of hotepism and these fringe groups and elements that we're seeing at play now? Yeah, so let me tell you this thing about white people and their familiarity with the black Hebrew Israelites. For where I'm from and where you're from, no, white people are not familiar with them. I live in New York, right? They used to post up like right at Times Square. I don't know if they still do, but they used to. Like one of the things that was very surprising to me when I got here is making a mention to the black Hebrew Israelites and they knew who I was talking about. Right. Um, which is which is made for an interesting level of this uh, for me, 
And it ties into the idea that we all know somebody who's like taking the path that Kyrie Irving appears to be on. And we kind of roll our eyes and we laugh at them. Right. So like when you see the organizations refer to the black Hebrew Israelites as a hate group, I'm not saying they're wrong, but I admit that the hate groups that are directing their hate toward me feel a bit more dangerous. Now, maybe the black Hebrew Israelites feel more dangerous if they are directing their hate toward you. Right. So, you know, there's something to be said from that. But I think for a lot of people that I've talked to in New York, Jewish people, even these are the dudes they roll their eyes at and scream at them at the subway station. Like, they I mean, where did they get they got their hands on like a hundred Omega sweatshirts? Yeah, like uh, no, but that's but that's their gear. Like, that's the thing about it. The purple and gold is their move. Like, that is what they do. And so I think a disconnect for a lot of black people in talking about this is them as a like part of the tapestry of black culture, they're there, you know, we're, we're, we're aware of them. And I don't think that the majority of people are even close to it. Take them seriously. But if I'm Jewish, I'm probably going to take it a little bit more seriously. Right. Like it was funny in my mind, I was thinking, I was like, I don't think of that group as one that I associate with violence in the name of what they talk about, but Hey man, it was a black Hebrew Israelite that killed Martin Luther King's mama. Like I was like, that actually oh, is a fact. Yeah, that, th- yeah. that threw you off, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, didn't realize that. Um, you know, so there are those levels of it. And like for me, as I said the media coverage where it was kind of difficult is I thought that Kyrie was being ridiculous. I thought that Kyrie made a mistake. Um, and I just generally find him to be a bit foolish. But then you get white people calling you up like, hey, you want to come on TV and call Kyrie foolish? Oh, 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 he's up there. He's up there. I feel like this is. I feel like you're asking me to do something that's different than what I'm actually over here doing. Um, His future in the league, I think he has weathered this particular storm, right? Like, I think he has gotten through this one. I think the part that gets ignored is, for whatever the reason, he's been away from that basketball team for this time. And it's 14 dudes on that roster who have to be terribly annoyed by what all of this is. Like, now that all of that has happened and it's gone, now he's got to get back to the basketball part. And I mean, he can't be putting up four points like he or eight points like he had before he left. Yeah, he can't do that. And I don't know how those dudes feel about all of this. I don't know how these dudes uh, feel about him. I don't know how they feel about having to be asked all these questions and putting them in a situation where they, you know, good chance you're going to say the wrong thing in this because what people are hunting for is somebody to say the wrong thing because that continues to feel the, mu- the media cycle. So I said I didn't think he'd play another game after he got suspended. I didn't think he would back down in the ways that were required for him to come back. He did. And I actually give him some credit because everything I saw him say that was in the vein of taking accountability for what happened all seemed to check out. And it all seemed to make sense. And it all seemed to be like somebody who had a little time to stop and think about it and realize, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done it like that. Right. Somebody who I think had a recognition of the position that he put everybody in and that they didn't have to deal with it. But I don't think his career is long after this. I do not. I just, I just can't I see how he's worth I mean, the trouble I, for anybody and I, else. And it, it drives me crazy because you have people interjecting who need not interject like Jalen Brown. Like what is, what is You have other people who are just put in this awkward situation. Yeah, well, Jalen Brown, I think they're too And I love Jalen Brown, by the way. I think Jalen Brown is, is intellectually curious, which makes him palatable. Yeah, we give, yeah, we give, we give people too much credit for that. If we're going to be honest, right? Simply being <laughs> intellectually, yeah, simply being intellectually curious is a really like it's a borderline patronizing way to give somebody. Well, at least yeah, that's the only way stuff. I could describe it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, I think that Jalen wound up in this on two levels. One of them is the union, 
And this was a union fight. Like one thing it's easy for us to lose sight of is I think this cost Kyrie a couple million dollars in terms of the fines. Like, no, the union has to absolutely push back on that. I didn't like the tenor and tone of the demands that they gave him. I think they were trying to make him bow down, but I also am fair and recognize that he had been so strident that I could understand why they felt like they needed to make him bow down. Like, like it, it makes sense on that mm-hmm. level, but the union's supposed to push back on that. And I think that Jalen Brown looked up and saw a dude that used to be his teammate, a dude that he likes, and he felt like the whole world was against him. And so he decided that he was going to be the guy to step up for him, which I would not recommend that he had, that he do. That is, I would have called him in the background. I'd have been supportive in every single way, but I don't think Jalen Brown helped anything. I think he put himself on display as, hey, I'm here, you know, riding with Kyrie, but I don't know if he did anything good for anybody. Including himself. That's a good point. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kid's education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and Empower What's Next. Start today at Empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the golden collection at UGG.com. So we're in the fourth quarter of football with conference championships and so forth. Uh, but let's talk about Coach Prime. And, you know, the Coach Prime is what it is. Because we're both HBCU graduates and HBCU and fans of HBCU sports, I've had my own opinions about Prime. They have been what, what they are. And how do you think the Prime experience plays out at Jackson State? And is the Prime model replicable? I mean, it's replicable if you can get another Prime. There is another right? Prime. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. It's not like they just went and got an NFL player and made him the coach. And all you got to do is go get a guy with an NFL background. And then you're going to have what Dion has put together at Jackson State. No, he's Dion Sanders, right? Like he mm-hmm. is an incredibly unique figure. And I wonder what this is kind of like for people like 30 and under who weren't around for like Dion when he was Dion, right? When he was that dude. Um, this is a this dude is a giant big deal, uncommonly charismatic, and important to note, a good football coach. Right. Like all of those things are at play at one and, time. And and he birthed Shiloh's OK. Uh, no, no, that's cornerback. I can't remember which one it is. The cornerback is OK, but the quarterback is a NFL player. Yeah. So, I mean, he did birth a, a superstar athlete, too. Yeah. I mean, there's some there's something to that part. Right. He also did it at a school that was probably in a better position to capitalize on what he was doing than any other, because, I mean, Jackson State has always drawn well in terms of attendance they've always traveled well like all of those things like this if there was if there was a school for him to go do this at it would be there fam you would probably be a good one you know something there but i mean he picked he picked a good spot 
to go do this. And he wasn't at Morgan State. Yeah. Yeah. But I think even at Morgan, you'd have a chance because they got a lot of really good players within an hour and a half drive of there. You know, like I think there were places where he could have pulled this off and he picked the right one and he's done a very good job. And I think that as soon as he is offered a job um, in at a larger, predominantly white school, he's going to take it. Now, I don't judge him for the fact that he is going to take it. Because one thing about it is Dion ain't of the HBCU world. Therefore, there's a level of hassle and nonsense that I imagine that he is dealing with that he never imagined. Oh, man, he got, play, he got great he got great players with no air conditioning. Yeah, I'm about to say, one thing HBCUs are going to give you is a bunch of hassle and a bunch of nonsense. Like, I ain't trying to pretend like it's a utopia for people um, to work at. So he's probably going to leave. And then when he leaves, what's going to happen? You know, becomes the question. So my thing with Dion when he got the job was, are you in this for Dion? And I still believe that he is. And I don't necessarily judge him for that, but this is not an environment that is really conducive to that outlook. Like if that, this isn't the place to be, if that's what, if that's what you're trying to do. Now he will be a rarity if he does get one of these bigger jobs, which is black coaches who coach at HBCUs don't get better jobs. It just doesn't, it. It, it doesn't happen. You can go look at it. You're not going to turn that not even into a better one double a job like that. That's just never been, what it is. So like, I'm glad for Jackson state cause they're enjoying it. And I think it's given a lot of uh, publicity to the school. I think it's given a lot of publicity to the SWAC. I haven't seen any real evidence that it's improving the recruiting for other schools. Right. So this has been good for Dion and it's been good for Jackson state. But I think that when he leaves, it's going to be over for all of them. When does he leave? I mean, they're undefeated this year. They got North Carolina Central in the HBCU National Championship. He doesn't coach well in big games. They actually got Central winning that game. I may be wrong and be coming back on my show and apologizing. <laughs> but uh, when, when, does he leave this year? Does he go to Auburn if Lane doesn't take that job? Um, I can't believe that anybody thinks that Auburn is going to offer him that job. I, I, every time somebody's like, oh, what if Dion goes to Auburn? Aside from the fact that I think it would be a horrible idea for him to take the job, I don't think it's ever actually going to come up. And it's going to be a horrible idea because the thing with Auburn is, and Auburn fans have been mad at me for saying this because they're not hearing my point. If you coach at Auburn, you're probably going to have at least one really big season where you win. And the end is going to be really, really ugly, right? Your reputation. And it comes quickly. It comes quickly. Yeah, your reputation will probably not be the same after you get to the end at Auburn. That's just pretty much how it's worked for every coach that they've had as Gene far Chizik. back as I yeah. can remember. But see, <laughs> but at least with but at least with Chiswick, Chiswick had a, a winless season in the SEC, and that gets you fired, right? The end with Terry Bra- Bowden, where nobody even talk about it out loud. What happened with Tommy <laughs> Tuberville, which was supposed to be the end where they jumped yeah. on the plane to go hire Bobby Petrino while he still had the job, and then he went undefeated the next season to save himself, right? Um, the end with Harson, and Harson needed to go, but the end with him was ugly. They white like we're talking about like, like no, he's not going to get that Auburn job. I hear people talk about him taking the Georgia Tech job. He would be a fool to take that job because that is one of the you know why jobs. he can't go because at Jackson State, they got players and they don't necessarily if your grades, are, if you went to class, you can play at Jackson State at Georgia Tech. That's like Notre Dame. I mean, the standard to actually go there is insane. Well, the issue to me about Georgia Tech is less about the standard because the standard is there. The issue is once you're there, they can't hide you. Like Notre Dame is simple in the sense that er- is similar in the sense that every freshman has to take calculus, right? Like that's the weed out thing about going to Notre Dame. Um, but with Georgia Tech, 
there's no easy major. There's no place that they can just warehouse you and hide out. It's really, really hard to find people who are both good enough to play high-level football and get through the curriculum at Georgia Tech. I mean, it's just a lot to ask out of anybody. So I don't think he's going to take that one. Uh, Colorado and USF are jobs that his name is involved in. Colorado's a terrible job. They just don't have the money. USF, I think he could do really good work with relative to where they are. I think he could really crush there. Switching to Power 5 away from Jackson State, tell me who the top four teams are in the country. You know I'm also a Gamecock. Shout out to them putting up 63 points on Tennessee the other night. Um, and do the championship game shake out in a way where we actually see the four best teams in college football play each other this year? Eh, I mean, you probably will. Um, it, I mean, I, I find that the four that they come up with, I mean, they typically work in terms of trying to figure out who the four best teams are. So Georgia, I think, will be there win or lose against LSU. I think they are by far the best team in the country. Michigan and Ohio State in some combination are coming in behind them. Where you get to when you get to four, it gets to be interesting. It's just really about how good you think TCU is. Like, do you think that if you drop TCU on the field with like a healthy Hendon Hooker, would they have beaten Tennessee? My guess would probably be not. Now, of course, there is no healthy Hendon Hooker, so it almost doesn't matter. How good is USC? I don't have a great answer to that one. Um, I can answer but that. right now, 12 USC gets beat by 30 by Georgia. If they're the four seed, yeah, you didn't know one. But seat. you know what, though? The thing about the Pac 12 is how good the Pac 12 is really has a lot to do with how good USC is. And once we get a look at that, we see things different. Like, yeah, Oregon got smashed by Georgia, but Georgia gonna smash everybody. everybody. You, go, you know, you go look at the top of the Pac 12, the better teams in the back in the Pac 12 are really good this year, USC. Oregon, UCLA, and Utah. Like those are those are good teams. Didn't Florida smack Utah? Florida got them in the first game, and then Utah pulled it back together after that. This episode is brought to you by Empower. You got money questions like, can I retire early? What are my best savings options? Can I afford to pay for my kids' education? Luckily, Empower has all the answers. With Empower's real-time dashboard and real live conversations, you get clarity on your real-life financial goals. So join 18 million Americans and empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. Sponsored by Empower, not an endorsement or a statement of satisfaction by a client. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough 
Visit Lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. So let's switch gears. We, we, we've covered a lot of ground, but one of the reasons that you are actually here today is because of your show, which is so dynamic. I'm glad that you got a show. You give the rest of us a great deal of hope. Talk about game theory, obviously a nod to your economic background, I think, even if I don't know if you actually named it yourself, but I, that's what I would assume. But for people who haven't watched the show, what is it about and what makes your show different from, let's say, Real Sports with Brian Gumble on HBO? Oh, I mean, the show is nothing like real sports. I know, know that, but I mean, people. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but I mean, you know, I was, I was gonna finish it out. Uh, <laughs> real, I mean, real sports is more of a journalistic endeavor. Like this show wishes to inform, but the primary goal is to entertain. And so, the comparison that I've used is that if you kind of like did an odd mashup of the Bill Maher show and John Oliver's show, and then made it about sports, then that's kind of what you have. Um, with game theory we're dealing with the topics of the day last season we did interviews with people like we had a big interview with Stephen a smith one with tracy morgan we had roy wood came in the studio don staley came in the studio for those um to do those but what we're doing is we're taking my ideas and my takes and then figuring out how to put them in three dimensions so i come in and be like hey this is the topic i'm thinking about this is what i want to do we got visuals that we can use we got sound that we can use we got a whole research department we got a writer's room we got all of those things so how do we put all those resources together to find the richest illustration or whatever the point and idea is that i have so like with john oliver for example they tend to take an issue and then dissect it that's not what we're doing we're like hey this is what i got to say about this and then support it as it needs to be supported promote it as it needs to be promoted and then go from there how can folks watch the show and when will season two be up Oh, man. Season two begins Friday, January 20th at 11 p.m. Eastern. We are coming on right after real time with Bill Maher. You can check us out on HBO Linear. You can also check us out on um, on HBO Max. Season one is on HBO Max right now. And the big thing we're going for, man, is it's fun, right? Like you got a great once- lead in, too. I ain't gonna lie to you. If some shows are destined for failure with a terrible lead in. You got a really great lead in. Yeah, you know, lead-ins are are conceptually interesting, though. So, like, for example, we had Oliver as the lead-in last time, which is cool, but um, 11.30 on Sunday night is really late, right? 11 o'clock on Friday, not so much. You know what I mean? And so I do think that it'll be a good audience coming in off of that show into what we're doing. But even – I can't even think about it too much in the context of the lead-in because I want people – I want the people who ain't watching that coming in because they know we coming on at 11, right? Okay. Like, I, like I, wanted, I want to get us to a point where this is a destination. Like, we only did six episodes last season. So we're still introducing people to the show. We're still introducing people to what it is um, that we're doing. But I can tell you confidently, like, there's nothing on television that is like this. Like, episode one, I like to tell people to watch. It's tricky because we didn't have a studio audience, so it feels weird after that we did have a studio audience. Mm-hmm. But you go look at the Duke Museum exhibit that we did in season one, and that'll tell you where we're coming from on this. Last two questions, because I can't let you go without some NBA questions. Can the Lakers be fixed? I know they're actually rolling now. They won, like, three in a row. And is LeBron just waiting on Bronny to get there? What is, what's his out? What's his end game? I mean, is, his body, is he waiting on his body to tell him no? Is LeBron done? Is he going to leave on top? Was he waiting on the sun? I mean, I think he's not going to end on top. Like, I just don't think it's possible for the Lakers to do that, um, given what the state of their roster is and the state of their draft capital and everything else. I do think he's waiting on his son to get there, and I don't know if his son's an NBA player. 
But, I mean, if you watch LeBron this year, man, Father Tom is here. Like, this is the year they chose to do the commercials with him versus Father Tom. And Father Tom is like, yo, I am a formidable opponent, sir. I'm undefeated. You ain't never... Father Tom is yeah, undefeated. You... Yeah, and so LeBron made the call that he wanted to keep going this long. He wants to pass Kareem for the scoring record. I think that's the biggest thing for him. He's not going to walk away from the $50 million a year that they're set to pay him for these years. Like, all of those things are the case. But it's over. Like, nobody's supposed to be around for this long. Like, it's a point that I make about Trump. When you start talking about Trump running again this year, ain't nobody hot for three election cycles. Like that just that that's that's just not how things go, right? You can't hold on to people for that long. I don't think Obama wins if he runs for a third time. I think Teddy Roosevelt once tried to run a third time and they weren't there for it, right? Like that's not how this works. And LeBron, hey man, it's been 20 years. The league is supposed to belong to other people. And I'm not, I don't enjoy seeing him play with the Lakers and the Lakers be mediocre. I don't enjoy watching him not be able to shoot three-pointers like that anymore. I don't enjoy any of those things, but I do think he wants to play with his son, and I think that that is a crazy level of pressure on his son, who is, from what I can tell, a very decent. good high school basketball player. A, a decent, he's a decent D1 college basketball player. Last question, uh, who do you see coming out the East and the West? I have been more unclear about this in this season than I have any other year. If the Bucs get everybody back healthy, I think they're coming out in the East, right? If Chris Middleton is still an all-star caliber player yep. by the time they get him back, he and then, then, then I think that they are going to win the East. The West, I am tempted to say I have absolutely no idea. I got, like you go look at that. Show, show me what the great team is in the West. I was coming into the season with a measure of skepticism about the Warriors because I thought last year was a bit of a free free for all. Somebody had to win, and that wound up being the team that wound up getting it. But they're planning on trying to do the future and the present at the same time. You see that 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 strategy is a little fraught. I don't know what Kawhi Leonard is going to come back once we get you know once we get deeper into the season. You, I you mean, just can't bet not, on the Clippers regardless. Yeah, well, then can, and that, Paul George right? in a big game. I mean, that's just not. I mean, the most talent is if you have a healthy Jamal Murray, and the most talent yep. is in Denver, right? Yep. The question with Denver is: Is Michael Porter going to make that leap into being that dude? That's is Michael it. Porter going to be that dude, or is Michael Porter going to be just Ben Simmons? Uh, he's not going to be Ben Simmons. I don't think he's going to be Ben Simmons. Yeah, I mean, he he's he's a bit kooky. He's a bit of a weirdo. Like I recognize all of that. But uh, Ben Simmons, Ben Simmons won't shoot. Michael Porter, six ten, he can shoot forty percent from three. Uh, and then by the way, there's Phoenix, who's right there, still balling like they've been balling the last few years. And the problem is Chris Paul is old, so can you? I was try? about to say Chris Paul is forty. <laughs> we just talked about Father Time, and I mean he's still balling. Don't get me wrong. Devin Booker is legitimately one of the, if not the best scorers in the NBA. Like he can score with the best of them. And DeAndre Ayton is, is a monster, but Chris Paul is 40. I love Chris Paul. When you see me in Charlotte, Chris, don't fight me. But <laughs> it's just going to be a tough go. Bomani Jones, thank you so much for joining Bukari Sellers Podcast. This is fun, my brother. All right, man, no problem. Game Theory, January 20th. Check us out. We are there. We are there. I'll tell you this going